Welcome to the Reality Taboo, where no topic is off limits. I'm Jeff. Joining me is my co-host, Ness. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe. Ness and I have really enjoyed putting the show together each week. Thanks for listening. Well, a couple weeks ago, we promised to explore some evergreen topics, and this week we're making good on that promise. We're talking about religion, specifically Christianity. Doesn't get much more perennial than that. I'm using this episode as an excuse to throw out various ideas and topics I've been kicking around for years. I do have specific areas to discuss, but this episode structure is going to be pretty loose. Ness and I both read an essay by Arthur Schopenhauer called On Religion, which we'll use as a springboard. I'll also be pulling from Timothy Keller, who's uh, I've read two of his books. Thomas Jefferson and Dostoevsky may also make cameo appearances. We'll discuss the role we see religion, particularly Christianity, playing in our personal lives. We'll also opine on the role we think Christianity has slash should play in contemporary American society and politics. And we'll also touch on Christian nationalism and whether Christianity is compatible with or contradicts Darwinism, evolution, and human biodiversity. We also want to discuss Judaism at some point, specifically the terms Judeo-Christian and the Jewish question, but we may have to save those topics for another episode. We'll see. Pretty ambitious agenda, so without further ado, let's get into it. So the first thing I want to talk about is truth. Is truth inherently valuable? Is it something that's important in and of itself, or is it merely a tool? Is it a means to an end? So in the context of Christianity, does it matter whether the specific assertions of Christianity, for example, the virgin birth of Jesus, the miracles, the resurrection, Jesus' ascension into heaven, does it matter whether those things are true, or is that beside the point? What do you think, Ness? From a strictly materialist, non-spiritual perspective, then no, truth doesn't matter. It's incidental at at most, but in the natural world, in in the animal kingdom, truth is of, again, incidental value. Deception is common. Uh, There's no sense of fair play. There is only nature raw and tooth and claw. But what I'm getting at is when we're talking about Christianity, is it worth spending a lot of time on debating or trying to ascertain whether the specific supernatural claims made in the Bible, such as the miracles, such as the resurrection, is that important thing to think about? From the perspective of a believing Christian, from the perspective of someone who is materialist, from the perspective of someone who's agnostic. Let's say someone who's agnostic, who's considering, maybe was raised in Christianity and took it for granted growing up, and now they're getting older, they're starting to think about things a little bit more critically, they're reading things, and they're, they're determining whether, should I believe in Christianity, should I explore other religions, and they're thinking, well, I at least I can speak for myself, when I'm evaluating the when I've been evaluating Christianity I look at well I you either you believe this and I've actually spoken to pastors who have explained most of the pastors I've spoken to explain it like this uh, Christianity makes very specific claims and they believe that those are true and because those are true claims that's why you should be a Christian that's why it makes sense to be a Christian so do they argue that those claims are important empirically validated or do they take those claims on faith as having occurred in the way that they were recorded to have occurred 
Well, I, I have something, uh, a quote on that. Um, this is from Thomas Keller's book, Timothy Keller's book, Making Sense of God. He says, as long as you do not begin with an imposed philosophical bias against the possibility of miracles, the re- resurrection has as much att- attestation as any other ancient historical event. And the, the canonical gospels were written at the very most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. So I think what they're getting, what that, uh, those quotes are getting at, if you believe um, Tacitus's accounts or, or any of the Herodotus's accounts of historical events, they, those have as much uh, validity or, or weight as the things described in the Gospels in terms of uh, whether the, the documents were valid, where they were written near, they were written actually closer to the, uh, the described events than a lot of other things that we, uh, accounts that we take for granted more or less. So yes, I think there is there there are uh, claims that these things actually happened, and that there are uh, there's rational historical basis for believing those things. Yeah, that perspective. It, it, historians argue constantly about the veracity of historical accounts. I mean, generally speaking, Tacitus and Herodotus are both considered generally more reliable accounts, whereas something like Cassius Dio is, is considered less less so. But uh, I, so the bigger question is what, the, what angle you're coming at this from. If you're coming at it from a strictly empirical perspective, then I think you run into the invariable problem that you're trying to use natural facilities, faculties, to evaluate supernatural events. And almost by definition, you can't. And I think that's what a lot of Christian thinkers, theologians come to that conclusion one way or another with their emphasis on on faith. So my understanding of the Gospels, they are written, um, they are written in a way that's almost like a modern day, like a modern day journalist would write in, in terms of, uh, well, (laughs) what a journalist should be anyway, um, recording events as they happened. Uh, just the facts, just what their their observations were, or uh, firsthand pe- speaking to people who observed these events firsthand. So the question is, are those true? Was somebody lying about this? Uh, what are we to make of? Let, let me uh, let me rephrase. Ness, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do, when you hear about those accounts, do you think those accounts are true? In in an empirical sense. In an empirical sense. Uh, my guess would be probably not. It's to what degree are they true or not? For example, if if was his body removed from a tomb, was it even placed in a tomb at all? I, I don't know. I I I don't have a strong sense. So I'm an agnostic about historical events generally, including ones that are imbued with presumed supernatural meaning. But I do think that, uh, at least, again, I can only speak with, with the religious leaders I've spoken to, uh, and the consensus I've gotten from them is that they would say in an empirical, concrete sense, these things happened as they were recorded, um, but you do not think they did, well, as far, the best you can tell. How, how would they say that they they would base that on faith, though, not that they could empirically replicate these things happening i think at least the the perspective i get is they they believe it like they would believe 
uh, Caesar's account of the Gallic Wars or whatever historical uh, historians event accounts of things. They would believe it in, in that same way, in the same sort of, uh, I guess, that same way. So why do they unconditionally believe the Gospels? Do they unconditionally believe Tacitus and Pliny the Younger as well? Do they believe without without qualification historical accounts from other sources that they deem reliable? Why do they deem the Gospels especially reliable? I don't think there's an empirical reason for that. Mm, okay, so you think that's where the faith comes in? Yes. Anecdotal sampling of religious leaders uh, doesn't necessarily reflect the general belief of the faithful. A Gallup survey in 2022 found that 49% of Americans take the Bible to be primarily metaphorical. Only 20%, so one in five, take it literally, and 24%, so about a quarter, think that it's effectively a book of fables. It's mythological. So a plurality, really a, a majority, a, a, a solid majority of self-described Christians look at the Bible and its teachings primarily through a metaphorical rather than a literal lens. I'm going to quote some lines from Schopenhauer's essay on religion uh, on this topic. So Christianity is an allegory reflecting a true idea. But the allegory itself is not what is true. Another quote, The weak point of all religions remains that they can never dare to confess to being allegorical, so that they have to present their doctrines in all seriousness as true, which leads to perpetual deception. Uh, another quote, The plain, unvarnished, literal truth is striven for only in philosophy. <laughs> but not modern philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the eyes of the friend of truth, every fraud, however pious, is still a fraud. Lastly, religion is truth expressed in allegory and myth, and thus made accessible and digestible to mankind at large. I'm not an expert on Schopenhauer, but I, I would. There's an epistemological question here. When the assertion is made that something's true or not, what do we mean by that? Again, is it an empirical, literal sense that something occurred or something didn't occur? I think so. That's how I take it. Well, in that case, then metaphor and allegory is definitionally untrue, but so is all language. All language is untrue because language doesn't have any empirical... It, it symbolizes representations of empirical reality, but it is, by definition, just a, a non-empirical rendering of an empirical truth. So it gets, it, gets, it gets confusing. Truth in these quotations, the idea of truth, is assuming a lot and probably assuming different things to different people. And so it's hard for me to even react to those assertions without being able to define terms ahead of time. So I, I think it, it's, I mean... Maybe I'm, I'm not thinking about it correctly. Christianity makes specific uh, claims. And again, that, they are, uh, that Jesus was born, uh, you know, all the stories, all the stories in the Bible, in the, in the Gospels, that he died on the cross. He uh, rose three days later. He ascended into heaven. Those, I think that's what Schopenhauer is getting at. He, those very specific things, he's claiming that they didn't happen, that they are allegorical and that they represent, they didn't literally happen, but they, they represent something. They, they represent greater moral truths. Yes, I would concur with that. 
But from a Christian perspective, the answer to that idea that these are merely metaphors because these sorts of miracles can't happen is that the age of miracles is over and that that chapter in the story of humanity and the spiritual journey of humanity has progressed past that point. And so just because those miracles can't be replicated today, can't be empirically verified today, doesn't mean that at some point in the past that they were unable to have occurred. I'm going to leave this topic with a quote from Thomas Jefferson. He said, quote, The day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin, will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. I think that quote is getting at a similar idea of that the, from Schopenhauer that the allegory is just a way to communicate eternal truths essentially to people because that's the only way they can understand them. It's it's I I, I took it as as a condescending way of looking at things that people can't understand or can't comprehend the truth if you just tell it to them straightforwardly so they have to use allegory and myths and 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 tell them tell these truth these morals in stories well what gets more attention today is it movies or mm-hmm. novels or is it like documentaries you know fiction sells a lot better than nonfiction. the human mind is wired for for narrative for story for allegory for metaphor uh, not just for literal dry readings of empirical occurrences. And it's a stretch to say that Greek mythology really imparts any sort of moral lessons at all. It's, it's a sort of pre-modern morality that isn't really recognized in any philosophical sense. Christian morality is structured, it's rigid, it, it, there are precepts that follow from other precepts that it, it it's impossible to characterize Greek mythology in the same way. The next uh, subtopic I have is Christianity without Christ. So what I'm getting at is can you excise or, or remove the supernatural elements from Christianity? Uh, speaking of Thomas Jefferson, like he did with his Bible, he famously uh, crossed out all the supernatural elements of the Bible and uh, just left in the moral teaching. So he said, quote, there never was a more pure and sublime system of morality delivered to man than is to be found in the four evangelists. So the question is, can you take the Christianity as allegorical Jesus was a person, uh, just like he was a normal person, but he was a great moral teacher. Uh, I would argue you can't do that. It, once you do that, it's not Christianity. It's just any other philosophical system. It's just whether it's Stoicism, Epicureanism, whatever, Buddhism. It's just one of, of other philosophical systems. That's my take on it. What do you think, Ness? I think that's giving it way too much credit. I think it would have to be dismissed immediately to channel C.S. Lewis. This is what he called the trilemma issue with the idea of Jesus as a moral teacher, because if he's a moral teacher, given the other assertions that he made, he must be either, there are really three options, hence the, the, the term trilemma, that either Jesus was telling the truth, Jesus was lying intentionally and was a 
one of the greatest charlatans of all time or Jesus was a lunatic. And so if it, if Jesus wasn't telling the truth or if, if it is just a non-supernatural philosophical system, then by definition, Jesus wasn't telling the truth. And so it, it's hard to argue that a liar or a lunatic could be providing a moral system that is the most sublime in human history. So I think we're getting back to what we were talking about before. Doesn't it just all hinge on our Christianity, the validity of, or whether we should pay attention to it at all? Doesn't it all hinge upon was the things that Jesus said, were the things that Jesus said true? Did they happen? Did the miracles happen? Was he crucified? Did he uh, die? And was he resurrected three days later? Doesn't Isn't that what we're getting back to? And that, if I understand you correctly, you're saying... That's the only reason, only if those things are true, if the things he said are true and the accounts of him are true, does Christianity have validity? So I'll turn it around on you. What, what would you have to see to, today to believe the historical accounts of miracles? Or are you not coming in already dismissing out of hand that they're possible at all because they aren't replicable in current standards at current day? Hmm. That's a, great That's a great point. I, I I think the only way I would, I think I would have to see it in modern day. I think I would have to see it replicated in some way. I think I would have to see something supernatural occur uh, in the modern day. I think that's the only way. Yeah, well, I, at the risk of sounding overly reductionist, this is, take it back to my two-sentence synopsis of, of the entire issue, which is that we're if, if you're trying to evaluate supernatural claims using natural faculties, you're creating a category error. You're not going to be able to see that. Can you explain what the evidence would look like for you to believe in the historical accounts of the Gospels? Can no. you? No, I don't think so. Yeah, so by def- there's no, there's, you're never going to be able to. We're wasting our time trying to potentially find accounts of these things because by definition even hypothetically you can't come up with what it would look like Mm -hmm. and so if you can't even come up with what it would hypothetically look like you're certainly not going to find something that represents what it is that you would need to find to have a sort of certainty that the historical accounts including the the miracles and the supernatural elements actually occurred Mm mm-hmm how do you deal with the, with the fact that you don't believe that these miracles happen, that you, you believe essentially the gospel, the accounts in the Gospels are, are false, they didn't happen, they're myth, they're false? Uh, does that affect how you live your life on a on day-to-day? Do you, do you, is there a sense of regret? Because I guess how I feel about it, I I've, feel like I, I, I think my life would be better if I did have that faith. I don't think I'm ever going to have it. Uh, I think I've really tried earnestly, and I don't think I'll ever have it. Um, and it sounds like you're in a similar boat. You can correct me if, if I'm wrong. Does, how does that affect how you live your life? Well, there are probably aesthetic monks who have spent decades uh, completely devoid of human contact, living in the desert on the sparsest means, who would take issue with your assertion that you've tried, you've made a really full... Fair enough. Full good feather, or good good effort, good faith attempt. Uh, but I wouldn't quite categorize myself as, as definitively disbelieving that these things happened in the past. I just 
know that I'm not, I don't have any methodological approach that would allow me to empirically verify that they did. So if I had that sort of revelation made to me, then I would be happy to accept it. But as we were talking about earlier, I don't even know hypothetically how that would happen beyond some miracle happening contemporaneously. But if the age of miracles is closed, it's, it's something that is not possible to be actively disproven but the the story does make sense if you grant within its own bounded rationality if you grant that in the past we were in an age of miracles and now that revelation has been made and the promises have been filled etc etc there's no longer a need for miracles and the age of miracles have closed so the commandments made in the Bible. But where does your system of morality come from? When you, you cer- certain certainly think some things are, I use the word evil, you think certain things are right, certain things are wrong. If you don't believe in, in Christianity, or where do you get that sense of right and wrong? Is it more just a gut instinctual thing that you have, your system of morality, or do you think it is a product of your Christian upbringing? What, what, do, you, what do you think? I think it's a confluence of factors. I think it's genetic, it's cultural, it may be spiritual. Additionally, I try not to close myself off from the idea that I may be having information. So inside of my mind, I am the only person who can get there, um, myself and, and potentially God, potentially some supernatural being, but that's not something I can share with anyone else. I can try to manifest a, a shadow of what's going on inside of my head using language and using nonverbal communication with other humans, but I, I don't, uh, their sense of their frame of mind is not going to be the same as my frame of mind, let alone their inability to directly access my thoughts. And so that seems like that gourd between the ears is closed off to everyone but myself, but it it's it's not impossible for me to imagine that that is my connection to something that is more divine because that's where it is just myself and the divine potentially interacting in a way that is not completely clear to me as a, a natural being. But that might be a grandiose way of kind of avoiding the reality that my morality is primarily informed now as a father of multiple children. Uh, from a very biological uh, perspective, a biological imperative that my morality is really to to live in a way that creates a legacy and protects protects my offspring and the tenets of the conventional morality that I profess are really are not in in modern circumstances put to the test to any significant degree. What I might claim to be a moral precept could go out the window pretty quickly, I could imagine, if the uh, proverbial poop hits the fan and I am deciding between my children or my neighbor's children. Right. So I guess, is it fair to say that that you, because I I have heard this very, very often that I remember distinctly, I, I heard a sermon at a church I attended and he laid out his hierarchy and he very clearly put God above his family and his children. It was God, family, country. So you would certainly not do that. You wouldn't put anything, any commandments or Christian, you know, uh, morality above your own children. For instance, like uh, Abraham 
killing Isaac. You would never do anything like that. Your children are your ultimate above everything else. Is that fair to say? Uh, I think probably. I, I can't say definitively because I haven't had that put to the test. Now, maybe if I had some sort of clear divine revelation that instructed me to do otherwise, if some supernatural event happened, like an angel materialized out of the sky and told me to do these things, if I was convinced that I wasn't mentally delusional, (laughs) then that might change the calculus. But given my natural faculties now, the assertion by someone else who has natural faculties that there is some supernatural imperative for me to do something that's biologically disastrous is not going to be compelling in any scenario that I can run through in my head. It's worth noting, too, that just speaking, referencing the Ten Commandments, half of those Ten Commandments are moral precepts that are shared universally. They're The first set of the commandments have to do with a monotheistic God, and that is something that was, at the time, a novelty to to the Levant, to the the Hebrew roots that Christianity grew out of. But the rest of the commandments about honoring the mother and father and not stealing and not murdering, those are moral precepts that, again, exist in almost every moral system that we're aware of. There's a quote from Thomas Keller's Making Sense of God. Quote, modern people say they do not believe in absolute moral values, but can't function without practically assuming them. Can you expound on that quote? I'm not familiar with Thomas Keller. Uh, That reads to me like an assertion. I I don't know that most people would self-describe as moral relativists. Sorry, Timothy Keller. Uh, But I, I think most people would still see or receive a phrase like moral relativism as a pejorative, not something that that most people would, would stand on. I think the context is that there's a lot of people, either agnostic or atheist, look at the dismiss Christianity and say Christianity is just uh, another belief system. It's no better. It's no worse than any other Buddhism or philosophical system or Islam or Hinduism. But I think they but they don't live their lives that way. They act, they they are very offended by certain things, by certain uh, behaviors, and they have very clear, unambiguous opinions on what's right and what's wrong. Well, yeah, if you're talking about atheists and agnostics, there are many precepts that they, that they treat as absolute truth. I mean, just uh, think of the ideas of like systemic uh, oppression mm-hmm. and white supremacy and this belief in hierarchy of you know intersectionality all of these things that have a strong religious angle to them their their assertions are not empirically verifiable and when they are put to the empirical test they, they collapse immediately i mean they just miss all kinds of obvious biological we do talk about human biodiversity obvious biological underpinnings to presume that that outcomes are completely independent of biology from the general social survey from over the last 10 years atheists and agnostics 50 percent are leftist politically compared to the broader american population where less than 25 percent self-describe as uh, a liberal or, or very liberal. 
and among theists, it's about 20% of the population. So there are a lot of leftist beliefs um, that that take issue with basic questions of biology, like, for example, to, to use one that's familiar to, to just about everybody, what the question of what is a woman, the absurd anti-biological answers that a lot of these self-proclaimed atheists and agnostics will provide to a question like that is informed by a woke intersectional faith that has no empirical bearing whatsoever. And I think that gets back to something that philosophy has been grappling with for centuries, at least since Nietzsche, God is dead, so what's next? And I think uh, there's a quote from Brothers Karamazov that stood out to me that summarized the, the danger of killing God, so to speak. Quote, For those who renounce Christianity and rebel against it are in their essence of the same image of the same Christ, and such they remain. For until now, neither their wisdom nor the ardor of their hearts has been able to create another higher image of man and his dignity than the image shown of old by Christ. And whatever their attempts, the results have been only monstrosities. I think that's true today. as we were discussing, I think the, the, it's a fair argument to have evaluating Christianity. Is it true or not? And if you say, no, it's not true, then there should be something to replace it. And I think it's very clear there is not anything that can replace it. So it's a very dangerous thing to knock down Christianity, to kill God, so to speak. Well, the transhumanists would, would disagree. They think mm. that... that transhumanist project uploading your consciousness into into the cloud uh, removing it from it the meat stick so to speak is the the next step in the death of God and the replacement of well the, the death of God or the subsuming of human consciousness to become what God was perceived to be historically I'm uh, I'm I'm not optimistic about that potential, but it would be would be remiss not to to mention that because there are uh, very many high IQ autistic types who believe that that is indeed the future. In the alt right sphere, you I think it's fair to say you hear a lot of denigration of Christianity. The ideas put forth that Roman paganism or whatever whatever. Uh, preceded Christianity uh, in Europe was superior to what came. And this quote, uh, this this idea is touched on um, from this quote from Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God. Quote, Christianity changed those honor-based cultures in which pride was valued rather than humility, dominance rather than service, courage rather than peaceableness, glory rather than modesty, loyalty to one's own tribe rather than equal respect for all. What do you think, Ness? I think Christianity did move those societies in that direction, syncretically, in a sort of Hegelian sense, but it's it's a, a gross oversimplification to assume that those values were completely swapped out as opposed to just being moderated. So from Constantine conquering in this sign in the 4th century to Urban II launching a war of reconquest in the 12th century to Franco putting commies six feet under in the 20th century, 
All of these things have been done with Christianity as the force behind and the justification for the martial spirit that that these movements and so many others like them uh, were fueled by. And now the extent today that there is a, any sort of Western rearguard action to save the virtues that were putatively replaced or that were replaced by or at least tempered by Christianity, it, it's Christians today in opposition to non-Christian forces that, that are far more antithetical to the concept of honor or, or pride or dominance or courage or glory or any of these other ancient virtues that were allegedly replaced by Christianity. If I'm making a polemical case from the Christian perspective, I would say that these virtues were not replaced, they were tempered because when... A virtue like honor is held up at the exclusion of all other virtues. You end up with situations where some man dishonors himself as a warrior by forgetting to sheath his sword correctly and ends up having to commit suicide, not just himself, but his entire family. His servants have to, to die with him. There's a lot of deadweight loss that comes with these this emphasis to the exclusion of all else on the, the virtues that were replaced by Christianity and that focus, that uh, undue focus on those virtues at the exclusion of other things like cooperation and magnanimity and social cohesion and these other sorts of things are a, a primary reason why Christianity was able to subdue the pagans. I mean, the the Christians, Constantine, in this sign you will conquer, the Christians were better warriors than the warrior cultures that they conquered. Jesus really did come bearing a sword, and he used that sword to, to lop Odin's head off and to destroy, the to just totally ravage everything at Mount Olympias and all of the other polytheistic <laughs> deities that were spread far and wide across Europe and the Near East and and sub-Saharan Africa, and really just had had its way with the world until uh, Islam was born in, in the 7th century to give Christianity a run for its money. All right, the next topic is Darwinism, race realism, human biodiversity. Are those things compatible with Christianity? So I have a quote to get us started again. This is from Christianity's Dangerous Idea. Um, Quote, Darwin's theory suggested that no fundamental biological distinction can be drawn between human beings and animals in terms of their origin and development. And from Schopenhauer on religion, quote, the animal is in essence absolutely the same thing that we are and that the def difference lies merely in the accident, the intellect, and not in the substance, which is the will. Finally, from Schopenhauer, quote, a fundamental error of Christianity is that it has, it has in an unnatural fashion sundered mankind from the animal world to which it essentially belongs and now considers mankind alone as of any account. Well, a, a strong argument against those assertions is that it is only man that can understand anything that was said there. There is a clear break that there is no other biological entity 
outside of mankind that can make sense of any of what was just said there. So I take it you don't see any contradiction between believing in human biodiversity, believing in Darwinism and evolution, and Christianity? No, not at all. Do you think there's... Do you think it's neutral, or do you think Christianity actually supports the these theories? Well, Christianity tracks various nations, and the nations have different tendencies, and the populations are described as, as doing different things. The presumption, the underlying presumption seems to be that that humans are not interchangeable cogs in a machine and that the Canaanites are different than the Israelites and and presumably then the Africans are different than the Europeans and the Europeans are different than the Asiatics that are different than the Amerindians, et cetera, et cetera. So that's human biodiversity. Let's split it, uh, it up to evolution. Why do you think there was such resistance? I would say primarily from a religious perspective. I, I why was there such hostility to the theory of evolution? I'm thinking in a basic sense, the the Garden of Eden, the creation story that God created humanity out of dust. It 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 was there was nothing, and then there was humanity. It certainly, it, to me, it's it's completely incompatible with the idea of apes slowly developing into humans, uh, into black Africans, and then Africans leaving Africa and, and evolving into Europeans and other races. To me, the it seems like evolution and the creation story are completely at odds. What, what do you think, Ness? Well, evolution is really at odds with human hardware, human understanding of the world, because there's nobody who, there's virtually no one. I mean, the people who are there are on the, on the dissident right, that small totally ostracized persona non grata segment of the population that takes these takes the idea of evolution to its natural conclusion no one who claims virtually no one who claims to be an atheist or agnostic will actually take evolution uh we even know the full title of, of darwin's most famous work which is the uh, the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races and the struggle for life or in his subsequent work, The Descent of Man, where he talks about how different racial groups among humans have differences in brain capacity and the idea that the most complex energy-intensive organ in the human body was somehow totally exempt from natural selection, evolutionary processes. And yet, though that so clearly follows from the basic precepts of the theory of evolution, Almost no one alive will publicly assert as much. So I, I don't think it's something that's specific to Christians. I think it's something that is is specific to, to all humans. I, I don't think we have the hardware, evolutionarily speaking, because it's not. We can, we can get into how those who have this monomaniacal desire to find the truth and believe in evolution... Uh, to taking it all the way to its logical conclusion tend to be the least evolutionarily fit. And so it seems that there is some, some issue with, with the, these belief systems and the, having the capacity for those belief systems leads to those who have those capacities being bred out of the population. And so consequently, we're left with the human population that simply is not equipped to understand 
the idea of evolution in a scientific sense, which kind of gets back to what we were talking about at the beginning when we mentioned how, how humans like stories and how they like narratives and and that is how the human mind is, is set up. This week we are putting our motto of no topic is off limits to the test. Um, I, that is, I, I agree with everything you said there. I, it's just crazy to me how people can talk about uh, usually, again, it's usually, uh, it's usually leftists, it's atheists, agnostics. They'll talk about evolution. Um, they'll talk about how that that explains uh, how humanity came about. But as soon as you talk about, well, wouldn't evolution, if it if it changed our skin color, if it changed our height, or changed our eye color, our hair, they'll they'll acknowledge that because it's a. I mean, you can't deny it. But then you say, well, wouldn't it have affected? people's brains too and then they'll just that's when they get real uncomfortable and they'll just deny it and like Ness said it's it's just absurd to think that evolution or biology would act on all these other characteristics but it wouldn't touch the brain it would lead the brain is just completely the same it hasn't it hasn't evolved it hasn't changed uh it's just it's absurd yeah the idea that there would be natural selection acting upon hair thickness which doesn't matter or matters very little in terms of survival, but wouldn't act on time preference or language capacity or visuospatial reckoning or all of these other things that are very clearly and obviously tied to differential survival rates in different climates is is absurd. And so you don't think there's any uh, contradiction between human by two two groups of people being different distinct there's no contradiction between that idea and christianity so i do you think there is any conflict between christianity and the theory of evolution as darwin lays it out no again i'm i'm an agnostic so i'm probably not the right person to ask that question to but i don't see a contradiction i can see how they can easily be reconciled so Ness, I think your idea is, is agreed with by this uh, by this quote from Christianity's Dangerous Idea. Quote, um, in an 1888 essay on Darwin, Benjamin B. Warfield set out his view that the Darwinian doctrine of natural selection could easily be accommodated by evangelicals as a natural law operating under the aegis of the general providence of God. So that sounds like intelligent design the theory that God had evolution in mind and, and he planned it out. But I, I still, that I have trouble with that, just reconciling that idea with the accounts in Genesis. What do you think? I'm going to rehash what I already said. If, if you take a metaphorical approach, then that, that's not a problem at all. If, you, if you're assuming that these things are literal and that the timeline is literal as well, then yeah, you're going to have issues. But I, I don't think that describes a majority of Christians today. So a Bible quote that equalists bring up a lot, and I think usually this is brought up uh, by people hostile to Christianity. It's Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, that's, that's taking the idea of asonomy and, and applying a spiritual filter to it. That Clearly that is not meant to be read as a description of a physical biological reality we have the story of the philistines and david fighting 
against the Philistines, and the Philistines are described as a, a, a giant race. Um, they tower over the Hebrews, so right there you have biological differences. But in a spiritual sense, salvation is accessible to all through Jesus Christ, and that's clearly the purpose of, Galatia, of that Galatians chapter. We're about to wrap up. One last question I want to ask. So uh, about Donald Trump, he is he has tremendous support among evangelical Christians. And you would think on the surface that, that this seems contradictory. He is someone who's been married three times. Anytime he speaks about the about Christianity, the Bible, it, it's very clear he has a very superficial understanding uh, of Christianity. And if he's ever read the Bible, it was very cursory. Um, he was, he's been married three times. He was cheating on his current wife with a porn, porn star while his wife was pregnant. Despite all this, he has very strong support among, among evangelical Christians. How do you explain that, Ness? What do you think the explanation is for that? Interest over principles. I think if, if your idea is that, well, are, are these evangelical voters looking for a spiritual exemplar, a paragon of virtue? No, they're not. They're looking for a political leader who will take the fight to their enemies and protect their interests. And Donald Trump being a cultural Christian who has the same general moral instincts and is not going to necessarily defend the things that he does as some sort of example of moral rectitude. Whereas Biden might go to mass, but it's clear to evangelicals that he and his coalition hate them and think they're deplorable and wish that they would vanish, wish that they would just die or be replaced. So I think they're due more credit for having an intact survival instinct that they're exercising in their support for Trump. All right, that concludes another episode of the Reality Taboo podcast. A bit different this week. Hope you enjoyed it and we'll be talking to you soon. Please remember, like, share, subscribe. We'll talk to you soon. Dennis Wilson.